yeah, so we have Not at Home and uh, Fire and Water. And what was your favorite part to read? Sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. I think not necessarily, like, my favorite parts in that, like, I really like them, but they just, like, stood out the most to me. So, like, for Not at Home when they're stuck in the cave and they still, like, they're all stuck in there and they can't do anything and they still send Bilbo out by himself just basically like, yo, you're still the burglar, you have to go out. They're just, like, basically saying you're expendable, go out there and check things out. I just found that really funny. And then the second chapter, the part that, like, always bugged me when I read this as a kid was the fact that it was barred that killed Smog and not the dwarves. Like, that was just, like, the biggest letdown for me as a child. And, like, I understand why Tolkien would have done it. It's like, you know, so then the dwarves have more, like, repercussions for their actions that now it's, like, involving all of uh, Lake Town and stuff. But it was still so disappointing, especially, like, they don't really, he doesn't even mention Bard until that chapter that Smog's attacking. It's, like, all of a sudden this brand new character Oh, and he killed the dragon. I was like, who is this guy? Why does he get to kill Smog? I thought the dwarves were going to kill him, like, the whole time. So that was, that's always kind of a letdown. That's so interesting. Is it, like, is it still, so now that you're rereading it, how does that feel as a narrative beat? It's still, like, a bit... I don't know. They just like how he like introduces Bard just kind of like randomly as soon as Smog's like attacking. Like they could have, he could have like maybe had Bard in like when the doors like first came to um, Lake Town as like some kind of like conflict, which I guess that's one plus to like the Peter Jackson movies is that he introduces Bard much earlier on in the story, which I really like in that aspect. Because otherwise, it's just, like, this random character, and he gets all the glory, and now he's, like, king of Lake Town, and it's, like, I don't know, really out of the blue, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah, I was gonna bring that up, too, in, because in, like, the adaptation book study, we didn't watch more than the first of the Peter Jackson films. But that was definitely something that's kind of always on my mind, is that that's a pretty understandable change to make when you're trying to make this a more conventional narrative, like trying to make it a more satisfying um, narrative for people to watch. Um, That's a really obvious change to make, is to build Bard into a fully fleshed out character. (laughs) Yeah. I also found it funny too that like I don't know, there's like a sentence where they, they describe Bard as basically like, I don't know, some senile old man that was this kind of like always making like controversial statements and stuff and like that's why people didn't really like him in Lake Town, but but now now he's got all the glory. Yeah, I think 
I I really want to talk about the politics of Lake Town because I think they're fucking wild and that's tied into like who Bard is in the book. Um, per, I feel like senile might be going a bit far, but I'm trying to find the part mm-hmm. that you were talking about. And it's like, oh yeah, there it is. Um, Uh, so it's like guardsmen like unnamed guardsmen talking to each other and it's like look said one the lights again last night the watchmen saw them start and fade from midnight until dawn something is happening up there perhaps the king under the mountain is forging gold said another it is long since he went north it is time the songs began to prove themselves again which king said another with a grim voice as like as not, it is the marauding fire of the dragon, the only king under the mountain we have ever known. You are always foreboding gloomy things, said the others. Anything from floods to poisoned fish. Think of something cheerful. Then suddenly a great light appeared in the low place in the hills and the northern end of the lake turned golden. The king beneath the mountain, they shouted. His wealth is like the sun, his silver like a fountain, his river's golden run. The river is running gold from the mountain, they cried, and everywhere windows were opening and feet were hurrying. There was once more a tremendous excitement and enthusiasm, but the grim-voiced fellow ran hot-foot to the master. The dragon is coming, or I am a fool, he cried. Cut the bridges. Two arms. Two arms. Then warning trumpets were suddenly sounded and echoed along the rocky shores. The cheering stopped and the joy was turned to dread, so it was that the dragon did not find them quite unprepared. Um, and then I'm also going to try and find the passage where Bard gets a name for a minute. There we go. Um, but there was still a company of archers that held their ground among the burning houses. Their captain was Bard, grim-voiced and grim-faced, whose friends had accused him of prophesying floods and poisoned fish, though they knew his worth and courage. Yeah. Okay, not quite senile, but like, like a grumpy, grumpy kind of guy. It it's interesting because like, it makes me wonder whether Bard is a true pessimist or a Cassandra. Like you know. Do you know, like, the story of, like, Cassandra and the Trojan War or whatever? Not really, no. Oh, good. I just, like, didn't give this whole explanation only to have you be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so, basically, like, in Greek mythology, um, Cassandra is um, except she's cursed by the gods, so she can see into the future, and her prophecies are true, but the curse that nobody who hears her believes her. So, I feel like there's definitely a question of, you know, is Bard, like, actually always leaping to the worst conclusion? Or does he seem that way because he's the only realist and everyone in the town is an idiot? Like, I do think that question can be answered both ways. Yeah, I, I can see it both ways. Um... Sarah made a comment about how the people of Eskaroth Lake Town have kind of a weird relationship with, uh, like, mythology and history 
and belief. Um, and she posed the question, like there's this really, really pointed critique where it talks about how, you know, the people who were the first to embrace the dwarves are the same, are the people who are also the first to turn against the dwarves. Like, so there is a question about like, do we have any idea like what makes the people of Lake Town so fickle? I feel like it has to do with just they're living on a lake and I don't know probably because I feel like they're pretty secluded other than like the interactions like with the elves and the barrels like they don't really mention any other interaction with like other can't remember so I feel like they're just like really secluded relying on like their own productivity that, like, I guess that would make them secluded or, um, like, clinical. that makes sense? Yeah. I think there's even some indication of that, too, because it talks about how the town was, like, really big and prospering when Bale was really big and prospering and also the mountain. Um, and if you think about it, it went from being, like, a trade hub to being the second last stop on a trade route. Like there's nothing past here except for the Wood Elves. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Like that that was actually a really solid explanation for why they would get more like close-minded and I guess insular. I don't know. I remember having kind of the same thoughts on this passage where they crown Bard King um, that I had uh, that I had when I first read this, and I'm like, is this a critique of democracy? <laughs> like, is this implying that the people can't govern themselves because they're too stupid? <laughs> Well, and then, like, the master, he, like, goes on to make the comment, he was like, well, you guys elected me as your master, so I am, like, Blake Town's master, so they have democracy. I just found it funny, because, like, he's kind of contradicting himself, and that, like, now they're kind of, like, it's obviously not an official vote, but they're more so, like, voting and, like, supporting Bard, and he's just like, no, no. Right? It's full of contradictions, because on the one hand, yeah, I think the line you're thinking of was really interesting to me, too, which is, um, Girion was Lord of Dale, not King of Asgaroth, he said, in the lake town we have always elected masters from among the old and wise, and have not endured the rule of mere fighting men, um, etc, etc. And then the people are like, we will have King Bard, the people near at hand shouted in reply. We have had enough of the old men and the money counters. Um, and people took up the cry, up the bowmen and down with money bags, till the clamor echoed along the shore. I feel like there's two things going on here. On the one hand, you have this valorization of someone whose lineage is important, right? And who's being made a king rather than an elected official. And then you have, like, 
your elected official um, being like, but we don't do that here. Like, we have a democracy, not um, like a military dictatorship implied in the rule of mere fighting men line. But at the same time, you're right that they are voting barred. Like, they're exercising direct democracy right now in that, like, the crowd of people is going, like, we, by overwhelming majority, want King Bard. And Bard himself is portrayed as somebody who earns that position, whereas, like, the master gets there by virtue of having money and being a good speaker. Bard gets there by um actually doing good things like he doesn't just kill the dragon there's also that passage where it like very carefully notes that the master of lake town sits down and demands food but bard goes to help organize shelter and distribution of food for everyone else <laughs> yeah Is it, do you think it could be like a criticism of how like capitalism influences democracy just like all these levels genuinely yes because it does feel like it's saying um it does feel like a pretty accurate critique of how people who are good at talking and have a lot of money but have never done anything good in their lives can get themselves elected <laughs> and it's interesting because the master is trying to like deflect attention from himself by scapegoating the dwarves Whereas Bard's yes. approach to the dwarves is very much like, yeah, who cares? They're probably dead. And I felt like that's like a real classic like politician move that he just sees in like the dwarves as the scapegoat. Like, don't don't blame me for our failure. Blame blame the outsiders and their influences and Oh. Yeah. It really is. Oh my god. It's like how many times in history has like war been started because people are just like scapegoating others for like their own mishaps. Yeah. I wonder. Okay, here's a complicated question. So all we really get from Bard is um then even as he was speaking, the thought came into his heart of the fabled treasure of the mountain lying without guard or owner, and he fell suddenly silent. He thought of the master's words and of Dale rebuilt and filled with golden bells if he could but find them then. So my question is, is this corruption? Or like a hint of gold sickness? Or is this not? I feel like in terms of Bard, it's more so like him looking out for his people. Well, I guess how you said like he stops talking because then other people can kind of jump to conclusions. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's not that he like kind of stops talking like let's like we need to rebuild and kind of like assist the people who are soaking wet and dying first before we hightail it to 
the mountain. Like we kind of need to help our own right here before we go take some gold. I is kind of how I read it as. <laughs> what do that you makes think? sense. I don't know. I think. Like, it's interesting. I think I would maybe argue that this is a really insidious form of the gold's effect. Um, because the source of what he, the source of his thought is really interesting. It's like a combination of the master's words, which makes, which doesn't seem particularly good, with this thought of rebuilding Dale and filling it with golden bells. So it's like, it's interesting because there's the slight hint that Bard is actually yearning for old glory. Like Dale used to be a town of golden bells. And so the idea that Bard yearns for that historic glory is really interesting because I don't think that's ever been part of his characterization before this point. So... I might argue that this is a really, a really, really mild and subtle version of the way that the gold sickness seems to affect the dwarves, where it kind of gets its claws into them by calling back to like a sense of ancestral glory. And then that turns into just like pure lust for treasure. But I don't know if there's going to be any, I don't know how Bard's relationship with treasure evolves in like future chapters because I forget what happens yeah I I also forget it could yeah like a real subtle way so it could be like you know really subtle and mild but also like kind of foreshadowing to the future gold sickness of the dwarves because then like right away like all like not even as bard but like the rest of the men of Lake Town, they're like, yes, the gold, we need to go get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're talking about recompense for all their harm and wealth over and to spare with which to buy things from the South. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have other thoughts on Bird or Lake Town or Death of Dragon? Sorry, could you repeat that? I think I cut out for a sec. Oh, yeah, of course. Do you have any other thoughts on Bard or Lake Town or the Death of Smaug? I. Okay, for the Death of Smaug, um, I just. Like, I'm a science student, so I just kind of got thinking, like, the fact that the big, like, giant dragon goes and dies, like, in the lake, and I'm just thinking, like, for future generations, because, like, it's a dead dragon, it's gonna be, like, adding, like, a lot of, like, nutrients and stuff to the ecosystem. Years to come, it's gonna be very prosperous for the lake town folk, and, like, this could be seen as 
a shift from like something negative to like something positive and I don't know that kind of just made me happy so interesting um I, I also really liked probably the part that really got me on this reread was uh the description of like Smaug's grave or well lack of a grave because it was so creepy and I really loved it um it's like they removed northward higher up the shore forever after they had a dread of the water where the dragon lay he would never again return to his golden bed but was stretched cold as stone twisted upon the floor of the shallows there for ages his huge bones could be seen in calm weather amid the ruined piles of the old town but few dared to cross the cursed spot and none dared to dive into the shivering water or recover the precious stones that fell from his rotting carcass um i'll admit that there was a part of me that thought that maybe bards thing about poisoned fish was not actually so far off because there is a bit of a precedent in Tolkien for like powerfully evil beings defiling water sources um this happens especially in the Silmarillion but also kind of a little bit in the Lord of the Rings with like the watcher in the water for example um yeah but there isn't any word here about Smaug fouling the lake. Um, just that they're really freaked out by the part where you can see his bones. So I think you might be right that, like, this might, you know, make the lake more prosperous. Like, Smaug becoming part of a lake, part of the lake's ecosystem, also fits really well with the earlier description where Smaug knows that the lake is more powerful than him and he'll be like quenched yeah because where I got the idea from is I'm in like a fish zoology class and Ooh. we're talking about like the salmon runs and how like millions of salmon come up the rivers uh, to freshwater to like spawn their eggs and then after they spawn their eggs they all die and then all the nutrients from these salmon that die after like having their eggs like goes back into the river so then it helps like cycle new generations that's kind of what got me thinking that like the death of smog is gonna help make the lake prosperous which will in turn then kind of help the people of lake town like with like more food and more trade and like become a bit more prosperous That's cool. And like that works really well with this idea of new beginnings at the end of the chapter. So yeah, I really like that. Um, Sarah has another question about Bard in her notes, which is uh oops. Um her question is like kind of are there any notable contrasts or any notable similarities between bard and other like leaders 
across Tolkien's writing, not just The Hobbit, but also like Lord of the Rings. I feel like I want to say Aragorn, but I don't know how to support it. I guess in like the same regard that like Bard is like a descendant from like the line of Dale, and like people are kind of like looking down on him, he's like trying to like regain that leadership. I guess like the same could be said for Aragorn, and that he's like a descendant of like the Numenorians, and he's trying to like regain his crown and just kind of helping people along the way and just kind of building, I guess, a foundation with the people on, like, a one-on-one -on -one basis kind of thing. Yeah. The, like, coming from the common folk trope, even though you have a royal yeah. language. Um, Sarah also has a note here about, like, waiting for the right time. Like, she's comparing um bard at least i assume this is what she's comparing um bard kind of telling the master of lake town like for now i still work for you but i might go north and found my own kingdom to aragorn's choice to like wait outside the gates of minas tirith until the war of the ring is over and not like go into the city while people are still used to denethor's rule yeah yeah, I can definitely see that connection. Um, and then she has a question about, like, Bard's pessimism. And, like, her argument is that, like, pessimism is kind of unusual in good Tolkien leaders. I, I think so. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who's Pessimist, maybe like Theoden. Mm -hmm. I but I can't remember exactly what he was like exactly pessimistic about because he was kind of negative about joining in the war. I can't remember. I think from what I can remember, Theoden is like pessimistic about his own survival, but still kind of has wider hope um and at the very least has some hope that like he'll make a difference i guess um yeah which is like start in stark contrast to when he's under grima influence and just everything seems bad that's true yeah but there's definitely that like fatalism there but it's also like in contrast to i guess a depiction of pessimistic leaders as being under the influence of somebody else, like Theoden being under Wormtongue's influence, or Denethor being, like, corrupted by the Palantir only showing him, like, bad news, basically. Wow, it's like, it's like a social media news feed. Tolkien's <laughs> predictive social media and its negative effects. Yeah! You're not Paladin. Oh, he's so cute. He is. He's a big oh. oh, look at his little face. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dragon that guards the last alliance horde. <laughs> <laughs> he is fearsome and fat and lazy. 
Well, we should probably talk about the previous chapter. I was going to say, we've talked a lot about the second one. Yeah, I feel like we covered fire and water, and now we're, like, going backwards to not at home. But, like, to be fair, I don't think reading them chronologically matters that much, since they're completely different characters. Yeah, that's true. And, like, I don't know, not that much really happens in not at home. Um, that's what I thought, too. I read it, and I was like, hmm. Um, and then I read Sarah's questions, and I was like, oh, I guess there are things to talk about. <laughs> wow. Uh, so here's what I've got. Um, the first question here is kind of a series of questions about the Horde. The first one being, like, what notable items are described in the hoard? Like, we know there's stacks and stacks of gold, but what, but like, what kind of specifics do we get out of it? I don't know if I'm part where they talk about the hoard, but I think off the top of my head, isn't it like mostly armor? Well, obviously the Arkenstone, because that's, we finally get to. The Ark and Stone in this yeah. chapter, but just like general Horde stuff. No, I think the Ark and Stone definitely counts. Yeah. I find it funny, and like I, I laughed at this when I was reading this as a kid too, that like Bilbo takes the Ark and Stone and he's like, yes, this is going to be my share of the 114th and then it, the next sentence is like but he didn't think that that would be acceptable but he did it anyways yeah like Bilbo takes the Arkenstone before knowing that it's going to be well he knows it's going to be important but before knowing how important it's going to be and like before knowing that Thorin is going to like fall under dragon sickness, <laughs> which is just like Bilbo, Bilbo, why do you keep picking up these incredibly important objects? Like hmm, it's a thing, and then sticking them in your coat, and then it ends up being of like world shattering. He's just very lucky. If lucky you call it, ha ha ha. Yeah, other than, I guess, the Arkenstone and then just like the armor that the dwarves find. I guess they find like armor and weapons. Because it goes into like lots of detail on like their armors and weapons. Uh, like a silver hatchet axe and a belt crusted with scarlet stones. So I guess this like oh oh and the harps, right. They find the harps too. But I guess like I don't know, placing a lot of emphasis on like the armor and like just kinda like I guess like, again like that foreshadowing to like, oh yes, this is very detailed and important armor that we'll find out later. Yeah, 
it, it's foreshadowing an upcoming war, even though at this point, we don't even really know who's going to be fighting who. I also like the part with the harps where Oboig specifically says Smog didn't like music, so they were still tunes. Also, they were magic. It's yeah. so... It's so sweet. Like, it's one of the parts where Feely and Keely are characterized as young because it talks about how the other dwarves are more practical and they're just scooping up, like, jewels and shoving them in their pockets. But Feely and Keely go straight to the harps and just start playing them out of sheer joy to, like, create music in the mountain. And I guess, like, the other, like, really important item would just be, like, Bilbo's mithril shirt that he gets here, because that's also, like, a huge item in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen the, like, fan that this mithril shirt was initially made for like a baby Legolas because what other dwarf princes are in the area <laughs> not dwarf princes sorry elf princes oh that's true oh my god this is like, like changed my perspective <laughs> I think it's possible because there's no indication anywhere of how old Legolas is. Like, we have no clue. So we we don't know if the timeline lines up because we don't know how old Legolas is, so. Speaking of Bilbo, just pick important it up. I kind of wanted, I wanted to go find the description of him finding the ring to, like, contrast it with the description of him finding the Arkenstone. Um, and when he finds the ring, it says, basically just, he's crawling, till suddenly his hand met what felt like a tiny ring of cold metal lying on the floor of the tunnel. It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. He put the ring in his pocket, almost without thinking. Certainly, it did not seem of any particular use at the moment. Uh, versus the Arkenstone, um... At last he looked down upon it and he caught his breath. The great jewel shone before his feet of its own inner light, and yet, cut and fashioned by the dwarves who had dug it from the heart of the mountain long ago, it took all light that fell upon it and changed it into ten thousand sparks of white radiance shot with glints of the rainbow. Suddenly Bilbo's arm went towards it, drawn by its enchantment. His small hand would not close about it, for it was a large and heavy gem, but he lifted it, shut his eyes, and put it in his deepest pocket. Um, and then he has those thoughts about, like, well, I guess I am a thief now. <laughs> it's, I guess, yeah, because, like, the Arkenstone is probably one of or, like, the most important thing, like, Bilbo finds in The Hobbit. So it gets, like, a really elaborate kind of description and, like, I guess, like, foreshadowing specifics again where it's like the ring is like I don't know I feel like it could also be like because I know like Tolkien like rewrote Riddles in the Dark but also kind of like foreshadowing again like Lord of the Rings but like it's just it's just a small little ring it doesn't seem 
that important compared to like this massive sparkling part of the mountain, but it's going to be important later. So I like that. Yeah. Going off of that, the ring is repeatedly described as in appearance, very innocuous. Like it's just a small plain gold band with no distinguishing markers like my wedding ring. <laughs> um, whereas with the, so Bilbo picks it up and he can't even see it at all. Like it's in the dark. He's just like, mm, like a weird metal thing and like sticks in his pocket. Um, whereas here he's like drawn in the appearance of the Arkansas and like it describes it, it describes it as having a sort of enchantment which is presumably based on its beauty, where you see it and then you just, like, want to have it. And even Bilbo is not immune from that. Yeah. Man, I really want to talk about this more, but I gotta go to my lab. But this is so interesting. I just want to, like... You have to go. (laughs) It's all good. I just kind of want to, like, throw out there, too. Maybe it's, like, kind of, like, a distinction between, like, an evil enchantment of, like, the ring by Sauron versus, like, I know the Arkenstone, like, kind of triggers, like, the dragon sickness, but I feel like it'd be less evil. It's more of just, like, a natural thing, but the Arkenstone compared to, like, an enchantment is, like, placed on the ring that's, like, supposed to be evil, so, like, the ring is, like, oh, you won't notice it right away, and it kind of, like, sucks you in, whereas, like, Arkansas is, like, an immediate recognition. But, yeah, yeah I'm good. The, the <laughs> Arkansas is under no enchantment but its own. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a really okay. good point. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna go. This was lots of fun. <laughs> Bye! Have a good laugh! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Eloise. Tara had to leave. Me? Oh, you already closed it? Oh. Uh, well, here goes. Um, so there are some rather interesting points here about, uh, how Bilbo, um, leads the expedition to the treasure chamber. Did talk about this with Kara a little bit, right? Like, with her commenting about how even at this point in the journey, the dwarves are still, like, making Bilbo go on ahead and do the dangerous stuff and... He's essentially a more bullyable Gandalf at this point. Um, But there's also, you know, a note here about how Thorin kind of steps up in this chapter and starts to actually properly share a leadership role with Bilbo. Thorin is consistently the first person to go after Bilbo, the first person to feel like a little bad, sometimes after Balin. Balin is apparently the only good dwarf. And in general, there are, you know, some interesting points here where Thorin steps up in a way we maybe haven't seen him step up since the dwarves got kidnapped by 
uh, trolls. And Thorin is like, who is this who's got my people? I'm going to keep my people safe. Um, And here you see, you know, Thorin knowing his way around the mountain, um, guiding people through the mountain, giving them a guided tour. And then eventually when Bilbo complains about being like, oh, we're stuck in that nasty hole. Thorin is like, don't call my palace a nasty hole. Just wait till it's been cleaned and redecorated. And that comment is very interesting to me and also apparently to Sarah, even though she provided no uh, elaboration. Um, Personally, uh, I think it shows some of the more positive sides of Thorin's possessiveness, which sounds like a weird point to make, but... In the same way that Thorin's, like, desire to protect, quote-unquote, his people when they're attacked by trolls is a good thing, that sense of protectiveness is a good thing, um, here I think Thorin is showing uh, the glimmerings of hospitality. This is my palace, and when I host people in my palace, it will be impressive. It will be, you know, like comfortable even i will be a good host um and so i don't think that's necessarily like a bad thing as opposed to you know thorin's possessiveness over the horde itself which is definitely a bad thing also thorin shows a sense of humor in this chapter which is wildly new for him um thorin previously has been a pompous windbag who is occasionally a very good warrior and is occasionally kind of loyal to Bilbo. I think Thorin having a sense of humor is entirely new. So, good for him.